0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM.
1: This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman.
0: David Fagenbaum is assistant professor of medicine, translational medicine, and human genetics at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's the author of a great new memoir. It's called Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. David is the co-founder and executive director of the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, And he's an NIH-funded physician scientist. David was diagnosed with Castleman's disease while he was in medical school and has dedicated his life to discovering new treatments and cures for deadly disorders like Castleman's disease. For this inspirational work, he's been recognized on the Forbes 30 Under 30 Healthcare list as a top healthcare leader by Becker's Hospital Review and one of the youngest people ever elected as a fellow of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, the nation's oldest medical society. David earned his undergraduate degree from Georgetown University, magna cum laude with honors and distinction, a Master of Science from the University of Oxford, his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, and his MBA from the Wharton School, where he was my student. He's also a former Division I college quarterback, a state champion weightlifter, and co-founder of a national grief support network. In this episode, David and I discuss his harrowing and inspiring story, the story of a young doctor who decided to find his own cure for the rare disease that nearly killed him, not once, not twice, but five times. We talk about how David used crowdsourcing to investigate the most promising treatment options, something the medical community is doing more of now, and how now, years after being first diagnosed, he's in remission, married to his college sweetheart and a new father. We talk about what it takes to successfully confront the trials every one of us faces and how to do so with hope, perseverance, and the critical importance of social support. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I'd so much appreciate it if you would rate, review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it as well. Now, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from an inspiring crusader on the frontiers of medicine, it's David Fagenbaum. David Feigenbaum, welcome to Work and
1: Life. Stu, thank you so much for having me. It's such a, such a pleasure and honor to be here.
0: It's, well, it's great to be here uh, with you, David. And the last time I think I saw you in person was at your graduation, where you, you sat on the stage with me uh, and, and we're, were honored for your accomplishments. Then uh, let's, let's just fill folks in on uh, your story in brief. Um, the medical mystery that you faced as a medical student and how how you how you responded to it
1: sure so i was a healthy third year medical student just down the street at the university of pennsylvania training to become an oncologist in memory of my mom who had passed away a few years earlier from cancer. And I was on a mission to, to help patients to treat cancer patients. And out of nowhere, I just started noticing fatigue and night sweats, weight loss, abdominal pain. I eventually went to the emergency department to get checked out. And they said, David, your liver, your kidneys, and your bone marrow are shutting down. We have to hospitalize you right away. So I went from, you know, being the, the caregiver to all of a sudden being hospitalized. They transferred me to the ICU where I had a retinal hemorrhage and went blind in my left eye. I gained 70 pounds of fluid. Is that jam- it, you gotten it recovered. It, it recovered within about two weeks. So fortunately, I have full vision today. Uh-huh. Um, retinal hemorrhage. I gained 70 pounds of fluid. I drifted in and out of consciousness. I was actually so sick about 11 weeks into that journey that I had my last rites read to me by a priest because the doctors didn't think I would survive. All with no diagnosis. So here I am literally dying in the ICU without a diagnosis. But eventually I was diagnosed with Mm -hmm. this disease Castleman disease and chemotherapy saved my life, but unfortunately this would just be the start of a a long and and scary journey. You must have been terrified. Absolutely terrified. I mean, you don't know what it is that's killing you. As a medical student, I knew I, I knew how bad my lab tests were I knew how sick I was getting but um, mm. we didn't know what it was and, and I had you know being a pen med student I had this kind of um, uh, optimistic view that there must be amazing doctors and treatments and cures mm. out there I just had to find them you know we just had to get there and and everything would be great um, but unfortunately so you had
0: a sense of hopefulness about it which is such an important theme in your work and your life
1: but uh, you, you you held that out from the beginning I did. Early on, I was hopeful, but I was kind of passive in my hope. I mm. I hoped that someone somewhere would would figure out my diagnosis, that it would figure out a drug for me and it would kind of appear for me. It was kind of like a, um, a very optimistic view. Um, and unfortunately- Almost a child's view. Almost really, a child's view, right? right? Is that, and I think that it's naive, but but I definitely had this me- mentality as a Penn Med student. I was hearing about treatments and cures coming out every day from Penn. And it's like- In your well, classes. In, in my classes. And mm-hmm. in, in lectures were coming mm-hmm. in and it's, I, I cured this and we treat this. And you get the sense that like, there must be treatments or cures for everything. And if mm-hmm. there isn't a cure yet, it's coming down the pipe. Mm-hmm. And here I was, eventually diagnosed with this awful disease that has been well-described by the medical community for 60 years, but there are no FDA-approved drugs. There was no research being done that was promising whatsoever. And it was just so frightening for me to go from this, oh, someone must be doing it, to, to, oh, my gosh, I'm all alone. All alone. And how many others – uh, are struck with this terrible 5, disease. 5,000 patients are diagnosed each year in the U.S., so it's about as common as ALS, certainly a lot less awareness for Castleman disease than for ALS. But ALS have... is Lou Gehrig's disease, Luke right? Lou Gehrig's disease, exactly. So there's 7,000 rare diseases. Is it a similar
0: kind of disease? Uh... It's,
1: it's different. It's similar prevalence, but the difference is that Castleman disease involves the immune system attacking your vital organs. So your immune system, which is supposed to protect you, um, actually starts attacking your heart, your lungs, your kidneys, and you end up dying from the disease unless you treat it with chemotherapy and you just kill the immune system and so for me chemotherapy saved my life the first time the second time and then I was back in the hospital a third time fortunately it saved my life a third time I needed a combination of seven different chemotherapy drugs all at once and spent almost six months hospitalized but towards the end of that period I was in the third the third time the third the, it was a total between one two and three was, mm-hmm. was six months mm-hmm. and um at the end of the third time, I was started on an experimental drug, the only drug that was being researched at the time. And all of a sudden, for, I, Castleman's. for Castleman's, all of a sudden, I had this hope again. Oh my gosh, this is the drug that we've been mm. waiting for. And I started on it, and I went back to med school, and I just believed and hoped it would work. And then when I relapsed about a year later on this drug, literally the only thing in development, I learned that, th- that there was no more work being done, there were no more drugs. And if I wanted to survive, if I had hope for a future, if I wanted to get married to my girlfriend, I would need to turn my hope into action and to start fighting this disease through research and drug development. Turning hope into action, and that's really the big idea
0: here. And you have have brought that uh, idea into the reality of your work and your life in in a really amazing way. What did you have to do? to To realize, uh, it's on me. I've got to be the one who who moves, who takes action here.
1: Yeah, it was at this stage. I'd, I'd run out of the medical community had run out of options for me, and I guess I had two choices. I either could have, you know, really enjoyed my final days with my family, with my girlfriend who I loved, and with my family, or I could say, you know, it's it's unlikely I'm going to find something that will help me, but there's only one way to know and if I don't try it's not going to happen and so I decided to kind of take a risk and, and take a bet that I'm gonna dedicate the rest of my time to trying to find a treatment. And and, and if it pays off, I get to you know live. Um, if, if it doesn't, I will have gone out swinging. Mm-hmm. And so I started a foundation, the Calcium Disease Collaborative Network. I started conducting lab work, literally a quarter mile down the road, mm-hmm. um, where I was running experiments on my samples and starting to make progress. And, and what I kept noticing- Were these samples of your own? own? <laughs> yeah, my own samples, my own blood samples, bone marrow, uh, uh, just any any tissue I could get my hands on. So you started studying your disease since nobody else was. Exactly. No one else was doing it, and I had a hope for a future, so I needed to turn my hope into action. So I was doing research just down the, just down the street, and what I found really early on in my research, I was so surprised that some of the biggest hurdles in the way of progress for for Castleman disease were not just scientific or medical issues. They were organizational problems. The medical hmm. community wasn't communicating with one another. There was no strategy for what we were going to do to drive forward the science. Everyone was kind of just working on their own, and no one was making any progress. And so that's when I decided to enroll at Warden and do my MBA. That was your motivation? That was my motivation to to was to out. cure my disease. <laughs> Is that, you know? Th- it's kind of funny to think, but it's like my motivation to do an MBA was that I wanted to pick up the tools to be able to get to a cure more quickly. Wow. And did, the, did that happen? So uh, in in the fall of my first year back in 2013, um, in the midst of doing research and doing my MBA, I, I had another major relapse. So I was back in the hospital for a month, this time for the fifth, this is the fifth time now. Mm-hmm. And um, leading up to that, I'd been storing samples on myself in the event that if I, if I survived, I wanted to have these samples that I could then study if right. I survived. And chemo saved my life again. At this stage, I was engaged to, uh, to Caitlin, my girlfriend at mm-hmm. the time. And um, we were so hopeful that I would make it to May 24th, 2014. That was our wedding date. Oh. And um, I, I struggled in the hospital. I, I, I No one thought I was going to make it. Um, but I survived thanks to chemo. And when I got out of the hospital, I knew I wouldn't make it to our wedding date if I didn't find a drug that could keep me alive. At this stage, I, I said, I, I can't wait for some doctor somewhere to figure it out. And so I went back in the lab j- just down the street and before- it- and you're, you're, at the same time, you're a, a student here in the in the MBA program. That's right. Yes, I was here for a month, or sorry, for a semester in the MBA program. But mm-hmm. once I was in the hospital for that month, I went on medical leave. I see. I knew, I said, I, I've got to be all in. Right, you know, right, right, there's There's samples waiting in the lab, mm-hmm. and I've literally got a ticking time bomb inside of me. Mm-hmm. And so I spent the next several weeks performing experiment after experiment, and, I, and I, what I ended up finding was a drug that was developed 30 years ago hmm. for kidney transplantation, and it had never been used before for Castleman disease that I thought could work based on what I was seeing in the lab, and I shared the data with my doctors, and literally there were no other options, and so they agreed to prescribe it, and I started on this drug, Sirolimus, and now it's been over six years, Stu, that I've been in remission and, uh, and, and haven't had this disease come back. So that drug worked. It worked exactly.
0: How did you figure out that that one might actually like what led you to that? I mean, I this may be going too far down the technical path here, but like,
1: where just what's what was the big you know, the insight? There was a hmm, let me try this. There was a big aha, and I I talk about this a lot in in, in my book because. there was really this kind of dramatic aha moment and that was that we'd noticed a couple things in my blood work for a couple years that seemed abnormal but we didn't know what the connection was and I performed an experiment where um there's this one communication line in the immune system that helps. You know, you have billions of immune cells all over your body, and they have to communicate with one another. And based on the experiment I did, it suggested to me that the issue was that the communication line between these immune cells was basically turned into overdrive. So it's kind of like if your immune system needs to to go into fight mode, it's like there's a fire alarm to say, go into fight mode. Well, in my cells, in the experiments I was running, it suggested to me that that alarm was stuck in the on position. And it's called the mTOR pathway, this particular communication line, and there's a drug that inhibits it that's been around for 30 years. You needed to shut years. it down. I ne- so all I found in the lab was that this thing was on and I knew from... Not supposed to be on. It's not supposed to be on, so let's turn it off. And of course, it sounds very simple and it sounds like I must have been like, oh my gosh, I figured it out. The reality was I said, this is a good lead, mm-hmm. but I probably weighted it maybe a 10% likelihood that it really would work. I mean, when you're mm-hmm. dealing with a complicated immune system, you have no idea what's so gonna happen. Going on. So You tried it. Yes. And then what? So I tried it, and... All I did was focus on. Can, am I am I going to make it to May twenty fourth, twenty fourteen? Am I, I going to get to my
0: my to wedding? My day. Get
1: to the church on time. That's as right. they say? <laughs> am I going to get to the church on time? Oh my god! It was I, probably a synagogue, though. I'm guessing uh, it's actually a Catholic church. So, oh okay. So yes, yeah, so I, I was raised Catholic. I've got ah. uh, yeah, uh, my last name is Fagan. Mom, I have three Catholic grandparents and a Jewish grandparents. I okay. All right. Um,
0: so my, my uh, <laughs> wrong inference. Please forgive me.
1: No, no worries. And so we, we made it to the wedding day, and then I, I think about you know standing on the. Altar and saying in sickness and in health, oh my told gosh. death to us part and oh you killing and me, that David. moment just like it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I mean the whole day was so happy, but then it's yeah. like wow this is you know and, and to look at my incredible wife who um who has who literally had stood with me through sickness and in health and and I and I thought to myself I said if we can make it through all the in sickness part I bet we can make it through the in health part okay wow. <laughs> or I hope we can and um it, it's it, it's just been uh, so amazing. What gave her the
0: strength to uh, stay with you through all that, I wonder? I I know you're probably just guessing here, but
1: what would you say? I I wonder as well. I think that we're both very fortunate. We have amazing families. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when I was incapacitated in the ICU and I couldn't communicate and no one knew what was going to happen, she had her parents, she had my dad, my sisters Mm -hmm. that she could lean on. And so Mm -hmm. I think that we're very fortunate to have amazing families. Yes, yes. I think that she also, throughout this whole time, She's been very optimistic. Uh, Once I identified this drug, she was just kind of, like, very confident. I was like, do you think I I should try it? Like, you know, what if it makes it worse? What if I—she just has been very confident, and I've always said, I wish I was as confident as she was, that, you know, the drugs were going to work and that I was just going to make it through.
0: So, you know, I I imagine that most people confronting anything like this uh, are just crippled by fear and a sense of hopelessness. Yes. Um, in reflecting on your experience and you know, drawing for, forth the wisdom from this intense life that you've been living, uh, especially these last eight years or so—nine years, yeah—what um, what are the the main ideas that you've drawn uh, that that you want other people to know about in terms of how? You were able. I mean, f- coming from a, a strong family foundation, yeah. which there's no substitute for, right. is there? Right. You so you were, admittedly, fortunate to have yes. that, and your spouse did as well. For you know, for the many people who don't have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, And even for those that do, what what are the main ideas that you are currently thinking about? You're yep. still young; you still got a lot to learn, and who knows what's in store. That's right. Um, <clears throat> but what are the big ideas so far that you have identified that you want to share with people about what you've learned about turning hope into action?
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, going through what I've gone through, you, you really do learn so much about life from from nearly dying. I've I, I've laid on my deathbed so I can say what I regretted on my deathbed. And, you know, the first big idea was that as I laid there the first time, I didn't regret anything that I had done or that I had said in my life. The only things I regretted were things that I had not done Mm -hmm. or had not said to the people that I loved. Mm. And so it's this amazing realization that if I made it out of there, if I survived I was not gonna let something go into my head, an idea about something for someone or to do something, and that I didn't turn it into action because I did you don't Mm -hmm. you don't regret thoughts, you don't regret you regret in action. At least the missed opportunities. That's exactly that's what I regretted. I regretted Mm -hmm things that I said that I would do, but I never did. And so I I think uh, the, the, the motto I use is think it, do it. If you think about doing it and Mm -hmm. it's the right thing to do, then you should do it. Uh, Another is this sense of overtime. So, um, did you discover something? I want to stay on that for a moment.
0: Um, something about yourself that you think might be more generally applicable about why people don't Do it when they think it, and they know it's right. What holds? What did you discover? I mean, we talk a lot about this on the show, and of course, it's a topic that many people listening, I'm sure, wonder about in their reflective moments. What holds me back from, from you know, expressing the the love and affection, and the the appreciation, the gratitude, or whatever it is that you Mm -hmm. have in your mind that you know ought to be said or done? Uh, What did you learn
1: about that? I call it the hobgoblin in the back of my head, and that's basically, for me, it's the the naysayer. It's the, don't worry about doing that. Like, they already know how much, you know, they mean to you or, Mm -hmm. or don't worry about doing that. You know, you've already got enough on your plate. It's kind of, um, at least for me, there've been plenty of times where I've thought about doing something to express my love or gratitude or whatever it may be. And I've kind of talked myself out of it. No, not now, maybe, you know, another time there's always another time. Mm -hmm. And for me, it it was rarely David, no, don't ever do it. It was just do it next month or do it and let them know, write that card in in a few Mm -hmm. months. Mm -hmm. Um, well, all of a sudden, when you're on your deathbed, no, you don't have those. No few more months. There's no more chances it. to do the things that you didn't talk yourself out of ever doing, but now you don't have time to do them.
0: Hmm. So you're thinking, mm, I missed
1: that. Yeah, you know, Caitlin, and my my wife, my incredible wife, we had actually broken up about six months before I got ill, and wow. and I hadn't fought for our relationship. We we literally sitting next to one another said. If it's meant to be, it'll work out, you know. If, if we're, As meant you were to breaking be, up, you mean? Yeah, when we were breaking up six months before before I before I got so sick, it was you know, if if this if this is meant to be, it'll all work out, you know. We're twenty five years old; we've got all the time in the world. Mm-hmm. And then there I was, six months later, no more time left, and and it didn't look like it was going to work out. And that's where I really regretted. I said, "Oh my gosh, I thought I had all the time, but I didn't, and mm. and I don't." So, how has that shaped your? relationship with Caitlin it's it's shaped it so much because as soon as I got sick she started coming to try to visit me she came to the hospital here at Penn she came to the hospital at Duke when I was there she, she came to visit me when I was just got of the hospital after the third time and mm-hmm. and we weren't dating at that time because we'd been broken up before right. we got sick but um but we we loved one another, we knew that we wanted to eventually be together. We just felt as twenty-something year olds that, you know, it'll work out in the future. And and of course, going through what I did, it gave us this sense of urgency um that we didn't have beforehand. And she's amazingly stuck by me throughout all this. Why do you think she did that, David? (laughs) I think that's a good good question. We should have had her in here. (laughs) I think it's a great question. I I, trust me, I've asked her um plenty of times and and she just always says, you know I didn't care how long we were going to be together, or you know how long we will be together. It was what she wanted and and you know it's what she wanted today and what she wants tomorrow mm-hmm. and um, and now it's just pieced together to be you know many years
0: so so one of the important insights was to to not hesitate to act on the on the uh, the thoughts and feelings that mm-hmm. you 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 have an interest, you have a desire to express. Mm-hmm. Um, there's more to it though. What, what else, uh, what, what are the other, um, major insights that that have occurred to you as you've reflected on your experience so far
1: Sure. so another is um an analogy to football so as you mentioned earlier i played college football at georgetown Mm -hmm. and um i think about overtime and so you can make a mistake in the first quarter of a football game and you can make up for it you know you've got time but you can't make a mistake in overtime every second counts because if you make a mistake in overtime the game is over and there's this heightened sense of awareness when you play in overtime where you're just very intentional. You're not afraid. You're just very intentional. And it's because you have a limited amount of time. It makes you kind of, It makes you kind of push out all the distractions and focus on just what's in front of you. And so I often say that I'm living in overtime. I guess I'm in my (laughs) fifth overtime now. But really it's this sense that every second counts. And it's really liberated me to feel comfortable to push out the not so great ideas and to focus in on on Mm -hmm. what's really important because Mm -hmm. you don't have time to waste in overtime.
0: David, um, we're talking about the insights that you gleaned from reflecting on your experience and drawing wisdom from it, uh, you know, doing the things that matter and not hesitating, realizing that, well, we're all living in overtime, right? And so every moment matters and how to try to maintain your consciousness of the the choices you're making about the investment of your time and attention. and we we, uh, we talk a lot about that issue on this show and I know that you have you you wrestle with this question too how much to devote to the work that you do uh, versus do the other things and invest in the other relationships that matter to you so in your particular circumstances how do you how do you manage that
1: it, it's really tough i think that all of us struggle with work-life balance and I think that's that's why so many listeners want to want to listen to this show and, and it it's something that, that all of us struggle with. I think my, my case is, is maybe even a little bit potentially more unique in the sense that when I'm working, I'm working towards a treatment or a cure for patients with my disease, but also potentially a treatment that I could need in the future. And mm-hmm. if I make progress for that treatment, then maybe if and when I relapse again, that drug will help to save my life so I can spend more time with my family. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, I have this awful disease and so I want to squeeze out every moment of every day with mm-hmm. my amazing daughter. We my wife and I now have a 17-month-old daughter, mm-hmm. Amelia, who is our just absolute joy. Mm-hmm. Um and and so I do she's struggle. Humble. She's healthy and wonderful and happy mm-hmm. and all she does is smile. It's it, she's she's amazing. <laughs> I'm sure at 2, you know, 2 years old, we'll, we'll have some different different experiences. <laughs>
0: Ah, uh, it's only beginning, David. But yes, uh, for now. Yes, for now. <laughs> Just lots. She's of a bundle of smiles and joy. That's that's wonderful. She uh, is. So she she must be like the most compelling thing in your life, practically, right? I'm assuming, and, and capturing your attention and your thoughts. So how do you wrestle with those? How do you resolve those tensions between the work that? Is so important to not only to others and to the world, but to yourself personally. Exactly, and and uh, wanting and needing to spend time with her and Caitlin.
1: I think that what I've basically done is I've I've been able to really focus in on on those two things: time with Caitlin and Amelia, and and time doing my work. And when I when I switch worlds from Caitlin mm-hmm. and Amelia to work, I I remind myself why I'm doing that. I'm doing it so that I can push forward science, so that I can. Help patients with my disease, and so that I can potentially have a drug that could help me spend more time with Caitlin and Amelia mm-hmm. in the future. And Which I think
0: it's probably hard to do when you're grinding out, like, ah, this slide is messy. I can't. <laughs> and and yep. where's the supplier for this drug? And we yep. can't. And now our schedule's off. And oh my, I got to fight for funding. Yep. Yes. So how do you, how do you stay in that high minded, elevated, mindful, conscious state of you know, focusing on like why you're doing what you're doing when dealing
1: with all the bullshit they have to deal with every day, and there's so much of it. You know, you're <laughs> you're totally right. I, I think for me, it's um. So I have a, a port that's you know on my chest, and that's where my, my chemotherapy gets infused into this. When any time I relapse, and mm-hmm. it's kind of for me, uh, and I think all of us have different kind of things that can can center us. But you know, mm-hmm. when I touch my chest and I, I feel my port, it immediately reminds me, you know it gets me back into where where i was mm. you know a few years ago and and what i need to do to to, to, to not you know to keep this port from needing chemotherapy anytime soon. Mm. And so i think that for whatever reason just touching my chest feel it, it it kind of like can can ground me back into like you know let's stay let's stay in overtime let's not let's not get back into feeling like, like we're in the first quarter of the first half where who knows how much time we've got. You know let's mm-hmm. stay focused with with the clock. So you
0: have a method yes. for,
1: for reminding yourself yeah. that
0: uh I now I remember why I'm doing what I'm doing, which That's is right. a difficult thing for all of us to it do. Is. Even even those of us who are engaged in the most significant work, mm-hmm. like what you're doing. Is there advice that you have for people who don't have a portal in their chest for a drug that's going to keep them alive to keep them focused on the things that matter most and living in overtime?
1: I think it, it is finding some sort of either visual or, I mean, maybe it's a bracelet that's maybe it's your, I was just talking to a, a friend of mine who said that he keeps the bracelet that he um, uh, wore when he, when his daughter was born in, in the hospital. And that bracelet's mm-hmm. in his wallet. And, you know, when he sees it, 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 it brings back a positive memory. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even though his, his daughter's much older now, that kind of like, like helps him to kind of just focus on something really positive. And, and mm-hmm. maybe it is some sort of visual or, or, or something that you can touch and feel. At least for me, this this brings me back. And maybe there's something mm. like that, that that the listeners can Some sort can of token or yes. talisman. I mean, this is what many of the world's religions have You're developed exactly over right. time,
0: right? Beads or whatever right. it is yep. that keeps a, a physical, sensate connection to mm-hmm. uh, something higher, something bigger, something mm-hmm. something beyond the moment. Yep. Which everybody needs, even even if you're dealing with, you know, not life and death discoveries uh, on the day in, day out. Um, So, you know, you had to get a lot of help from a lot of people Mm -hmm. to make it to where you are now. Uh, And I I know that... uh, I'm curious, and I'm sure many listeners are, wanting to know more about what you discovered about how to advocate and to be active. You, know, you decided to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to cure this. I've got the tools. I've got the opportunity. If I don't do it, no one's going to, so I have to. What advice do you have for people who might be in a similar situation where they're seeing the world as uh, unfair, unforgiving, cruel, um, and you know they they don't have a cure for whatever it is that's ailing them yep. in their lives. What have you learned about you know the psychology of of uh transforming that sense of desperation and perhaps desolation to 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 being affirmative and and moving and doing what you can
1: yeah, so you you mentioned the the kind of patient that, that kind of feels frustrated with the system, that have, kind of feels like they've run out of options. There's also the patient that just fully trusts that you know there must be a doctor or their doctor is definitely going to find a solution for them. And I think that for both of those kinds of patients, both the ones who are totally confident in their doctor and the ones who are not confident at all in the healthcare system, I would tell both of them the most important thing is that you need to find out where the world's expert is, or at least where hmm. where's the U.S., you know, who's the U.S. expert? Can you drive to them? Um, you know, no matter hmm. whether you love your doctor that's taking care of you in your neighborhood um, or your community hospital, do the extra work to figure out is there someone somewhere that all they do is think about this particular disease, especially if it's a rare disease. Um, and, and, and so first find out is there someone that you could drive to um and secondly which is related to this you know will you drive there keep fighting and keep advocating so even when your doctor comes up with with their plan uh, i'm not saying to be uh negative uh but 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 ask a little bit more really a push to make sure that this is the right thing for you and i think that um, a lot of times we can um have a hard time asking doctors those it sort of questions, hard. but I think it's really important to you know where is the expert, and if and if I'm with the expert or not, you know, continuing mm-hmm. to push and advocate for yourself.
0: You know, the traditional sort of uh, higher status hierarchical model of uh, of of doctor patient relationships in our country, especially, yes. uh, inhibits that sort of freedom to advocate yes. and to inquire and to be curious mm-hmm. and to push. Uh, on your own behalf or on the behalf of you know a family member or a loved one who is, you know, who you're advocating for. So how do you overcome that?
1: I remember being terrified. I mean, early on, I remember when I brought up the idea of going to see the world's expert who happened to be in Little Rock, Arkansas, my, my doctor um, basically made me feel as though if I left to go see this other doctor that I wasn't welcome. He didn't put it in those oh, wow. words, but that's how I felt. All right, felt. you want to go to that guy? Yeah, Forget it. Exact. You don't need me. Basically. And, wow. And, and, you know, and, and it, here you were... A student yeah, in this exactly. university's medical school. Well, and actually, fortunately, this was not a doctor here. Fortunately, okay. it was a doctor at another medical center, oh, okay. thankfully. All right, all right. But it was another great medical center. Uh-huh. And, um, and and he basically said, yeah, if, you know, I can do anything that that doctor can do. So why would you need to go there? And I remember being wow. afraid of it. But for me, after going through the third or fourth or the fifth time where my doctors were trying their best, but mm-hmm. they still could barely stop this disease, that's when I realized that, um, that sometimes you have to – kind of get over the fear that, you know, maybe you'll upset someone because, um, at the end of the day, it's not know, their lives. Gotta fight. Exactly. At the end of the day, it's not their lives. You got to fight for yourself. Uh,
0: David, uh, let's, let's return to the conversation about what you can say to people about help seeking and advocacy. Uh, so one one key idea is look, it's your life. No, you know, nobody's really going to push for it as hard as you are. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can't be afraid to offend other people by asking for more, despite the fact that they might smack you down, you know, emotionally and say, "Fine, leave, yeah. go to another doctor. I don't care." Uh, which is unfortunate. It is. So that's something that you know your work and and the work of many others I know is trying to reshape those that's relationships right. and to take a different kind of uh, approach to how you encourage patients to ask the hard Absolutely. questions of you. Difficult as that makes your life as a physician, especially when you don't have the answers, That's right. Um, and you're hoping that you do. What else uh, can, you, can you advise people about help-seeking generally?
1: I think that an, another important area to go is to figure out, is there an advocacy organization for your particular disease? Mm-hmm. There are 7,000 rare diseases, affects 30 million Americans. Most rare diseases have very little awareness or very little advocacy. Mm. But it's important that if there is a group, to connect with them because it's likely – that they have some work being done that maybe you could be a part of. Maybe you can say, I want to turn my hope for a cure into action rather than just hoping that someone somewhere figures it out. What can I do? Can I put on a bake sale? Can I call some doctors? What can I do to be a part of this?
0: And how does that change, well, your 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 own awareness of who you are in the world and what your possibilities are as well as actually making a difference? Because uh, you could see people thinking, well... Bake sale, really? How's that going to make? How's that going to matter ultimately? Yeah, I but it does it, matter, doesn't it?
1: It does. I think it does two things. Um, my my former life before um, Castleman's was in the the grief world. After I, I lost my mom to, to cancer, and um, I sp- started an organization to connect other college students dealing with grief and loss. And what what I found was that the more time that I spent Supporting or doing some sort of community service with my classmates that were going through similar things, the more helpful it was for me. So helping others mm-hmm. helped me cope. And How did it help you, David? It helped me to feel like all that I went through and all that my mom went through with her cancer, that something positive was coming from what she went through and what I went through. This idea that... Um, That something good could come from all this bad made me feel good that like, you know, she was an amazing person. She's no longer here. But I can create a silver lining. I can do something that can not find a silver lining because there wasn't a silver lining to find I can do something to create a silver lining where there was not a silver lining and that that to me makes me feel good about the world and, sure. and about my mom and about yourself and about myself and I think that I've and I tr-
0: your relationships with
1: other people exactly and I think I've, I've found the same thing in the rare disease world that um, that you're right uh, it's probably unlikely it, it, it's a low chance that what happened in my case. Was going to happen for me that you know I was going to find the drug that you and me are going to be here in the studio right now that I'm going to be alive today Mm -hmm. to talk about finding a drug. It was much more likely that I was going to try my hardest, I was going to do all the research I could, I was going to raise all the money I could, and then still die. And I was still going to die, and and I wouldn't have made it. And that's that's the the likely scenario, but I wouldn't have considered that a total failure because along the way, I would have planted some seeds, Mm -hmm. I would have. Um, showed my family that they were worth fighting for. You know, I'm fighting for a cure, not just for me, for, for, my, for Caitlin, for, for my family. Um, I would have shown them, you know, how much I cared about them. And hopefully I would have inspired some people along the way. And so I think that um, you're right. You may not get the result that you're necessarily shooting for from the bake sale or from the volunteering for the organization, but you might. I, I'm here because of the, you might, but you also will, I think, get some other benefits along the way.
0: A sense that your life has some purpose. That's right. right. in In affecting the world in a positive way, and even if it's in a small way, it really does shift how you think about yourself and about uh, and about humanity. That's right. Uh, and perhaps leaves you with uh, fewer regrets when you're, you know, drawing your
1: last breaths. That's right. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with hope. You know, early on, I was hopeful because I believed that kind of the right things worked out. Now I'm hopeful because I know that there are things I can do that can help to create the future that I'm hoping for and that others can do. So it's about shifting from this being passively hopeful that someone somewhere will fix it to saying, I here right now, I'm going to do what I can to create that future that I'm hoping for. What else
0: do people need to know about uh, what it takes to overcome you know, terrible loss uh, and a sense of uh, uh, hopelessness uh, that, that we haven't yet talked about? What else do you want to make sure people know about uh, what it means to turn hope into action?
1: I think the power of positivity and humor is really, really important. Um, I immediately think, and I'll make it a, a quick anecdote, I immediately think about when I was— In the hospital I was very sick I had a bunch of fluid in my belly because my liver and kidneys were not working and my dad and I went on our first walk in months it was New Year's Eve 2010 and as we passed the family waiting area there was a gentleman who had been drinking he was drunk on New Year's and in our next lap we had seen he had fallen onto the floor and so my dad ran over to him and helped him back into his chair and he looked at my dad and I and he said thanks so much good luck to you and your wife He thought I was my dad's pregnant wife. Nice, and we burst in because you had it because I had such a big belly. So, so he thought I was my dad's pregnant wife, and that could have just broken us. You know, we could have cried, but rather we laughed.
0: (laughs) Well, especially since your mother had died (laughs) not that long prior,
1: and. yes (laughs) all the ways in which that was just wrong all the ways it was wrong but we laughed so hard Stu, and and that laughter together in the Mm. midst of what could have been a really depressing concept you know this guy thinks i'm my dad's pregnant wife Mm -hmm. but finding an opportunity to laugh with the people you love Mm -hmm. that that and, and many experiences like that have been so powerful
0: well that's that's real humanity of course you had the benefit of your father being there that's right right so again you had you had that, that good fortune. And as you think to what you want your legacy to be, David, what, what, what occurs to you first first of all?
1: I think the first thing, and, and it, it's t- maybe I won't say the first thing, the first two things. Um, I, I want the approach that we've taken to research to, to spawn and spurn new drugs for, for patients all, all over the world. This drug I was, I'm on was developed 30 years ago at saving my life. I, I want to really push forward this approach of taking old drugs and using them in new ways. Cause I think there's a lot of cures out there. Hmm. And, and if I can be a part of inspiring that, and that's one of the reasons why I, I did want to share my message through this book. The, the other is that I want to be an amazing dad and husband. And, um, the two are, are for me are, are very connected. And, um, How's that? And, and I think number one is that as I'm Trying to drive for the science for Castleman's and other diseases. This will help me to be around longer for my mm-hmm. my wife and and daughter. But also, um, I, I want I want that to be something that they're proud of. I want I want my my daughter um, to. If I'm not here for, for for that long mm-hmm. or, or for however long it may be, I want her to remember that 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 you know her dad made a difference in, in health.
0: Hmm. And and how do you think that? How do you hope that that model will influence? her and her development and her role in the world and the challenges that she's going to face in a world that is increasingly fragile?
1: I hope that it will um, help her to be resilient. Our our mutual friend, uh, Angela Duckworth, of course, talks about grit and about the importance of resilience. Mm -hmm. I think that um, probably one main takeaway from, from my story is that um, in the midst of really tough times, you know, digging deep to find that inner grit to keep fighting, I think is one of the most important things that I can teach Amelia. Um, and that, and as soon as she's maybe old enough to learn these things, I'm going to start to start to try to teach her.
0: Like what? What's uh, what's top of mind as you think about? I mean, she's probably already picking up, uh, you know, in, intimations of what it means to be, uh, you know, forward looking mm-hmm. and to. To try to capture the joy of life uh, from from you and and your wife, uh, wh- what else do you have in mind that you know is particular to your experience that you want to make sure that she knows?
1: I think that um, that what we're talking about with you know finding humor in the midst of tough times and positivity mm-hmm. during you know the good times are good, right? Um, it's it's the bad times that I think that where you really can define who a person is and you can really um, where you can really have an have an impact, and so. Fortunately, Caitlin, Amelia, and I have not had too many low moments um, since she arrived a year and a half ago. Mm-hmm. But we will, and I think that you know I want Amelia to see how how we both Caitlin and I um, how we handle those tough times, mm-hmm. and and maybe try to find some positivity in the midst of it, create a silver lining um, that she can see.
0: I mean, this is true for all of us, exactly. isn't it? Uh, are, are there other? Uh, Points that you want to make sure we make as we're as we're wrapping up here to to listeners who who might be facing similar kinds of circumstances in their lives, or you know, uh, might be reflecting on an experience that is in some way resonant with yours uh, that has occurred to them.
1: You know, I think that I, I would go to the when I was my mom's caregiver when I was um, you know, coping mm-hmm. with her illness. I remember that I always wanted to be strong around her. I tried not to cry in front of her. I would cry you know, outside mm. of the hospital room. I would cry in my bedroom. And I, and I had this sense that I wanted to be strong for her. Hmm. Um, strong being... Meaning, meaning not crying. Not crying. Not, crying not, and I, that I, that was It strange. was like this idea that I, I didn't want her to then be worried about me. It was uh-huh. I want her to focus on her. Don't worry about you know me. Yeah. And then I became the sick patient. And then I was in the hospital. And, and I remember that actually having my dad and sisters next to me crying, being present with me while they cried was actually exactly what I wanted. I didn't oh. want them to be crying, but if they were upset, I wanted them to be upset with me uh, together. And, and I think that one thing I've learned is is, is that exactly crying is not weakness. You, you can cry and be strong. And, and and it I was worried about my disease. It didn't make me more worried about my disease that they were worried, um, but it, it brought us together in a way that yeah. previously I didn't think it, it could.
0: When your mother was dying. That's right. So, yeah. So, that's probably something that you regret looking back, right? Absolutely. That you didn't cry with your mom.
1: That's right. You know, it wasn't until two weeks before she passed away that her and I had our first kind of real mm. just breakdown about the reality of what was happening mm. up until then it was I remember I asked the doctor I said what's the longest that anyone with her form of cancer has ever lived and they said five years I said well she's gonna live five years in one day mm-hmm. and that was how I viewed the world mm. and and with the, and her and I we didn't you know have the tough conversations until it was really at the very end mm. and I think it is important for us to Um, to go there um, with the people that we love.
0: If you think it, do it. Think it, do it. Even if it's tears. That's right. And uh, there's almost always something to cry about. That's right. (laughs) Because life is hard and it presents all kinds of challenges to us every day. That's right. Uh, So to not be afraid of uh, the full range of uh, human emotion and is is something that I think is a, a super important lesson. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us. Uh, tell us uh, a bit more about like what's coming, like wh- what you're in the last minute or so here. What's what's next on the horizon for your 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 professional agenda and how uh, you're hoping to uh, achieve uh, better science and better medicine.
1: Yeah. So we're continuing to drive forward research around the drug that's saving my life for other patients. We know it works in about a third of patients. So we've still got two thirds that we need, we need new drugs for. Um, but in parallel, I'm really passionate about this idea of off-label drug use and taking a drug approved for one thing and using it in other ways. Mm-hmm. The medical system is not incentivized to do that. Once something is approved for one thing, we start thinking about developing a new, a new drug for the next thing mm-hmm. um, because the incentives just aren't there. And so I, I'm trying to work with FDA and with pharmaceutical companies to say, look at me. I'm here physically because of a drug that no one ever thought could work for Castleman disease. But no one's going to ever know unless we do the work to figure out mm-hmm. what other uses exist for these drugs that are currently available. So how are you pursuing that in brief? So is... it's, it's working with FDA. To, uh, the, the biggest way you can do it and what we're trying is, is through congressional, through passing a law oh. that would actually incentivize taking a drug that's approved for a common disease. And if you could get it approved for a rare disease, you could get an extra six months of patent exclusivity. That, I think, is probably the best huh. way. Today, in our current political climate, it's not very easy to push these sort of potentially bipartisan things through. And so as a result, it's unlikely that's gonna happen. So we're trying to think of other ways Mm -hmm. beyond true financial incentives that we can get people to say, if it's approved for one thing, let's try it for another thing.
0: Well, good luck with that. Uh, And I mean that not just as a flip, you know, good luck with that, like
1: forget it, but uh,
0: it seems super important. What's the best place for for listeners to find out more about your book and the other work that you're doing?
1: So go to Mm -hmm. chasingmycure.com. You can learn all about the book. You can also um, learn about the work we're doing. For many other diseases, the title of the book is Chasing My Cure, but it probably should be Chasing Our Cures, because this isn't just about me and it's not just about Castleman Disease. It's really about how do we chase cures for all all of the people out there that don't currently have one.
0: David, thank you again for joining me in the studio. Uh,
1: really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. See, this has been great.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with David Fagenbaum and you found it to be enlightening, intriguing, and inspirational, as I certainly did. There's so much to learn from his remarkable story. So let me now challenge you, invite you, to focus in on just this one aspect of his experience and and the wisdom we we can draw from it. Using the metaphor that David describes vividly, uh, drawn from his days as a competitive athlete, about overtime. Why not take a minute to just breathe, step back, and imagine it's overtime in the game of your life, when every action matters in determining your success, your failure. What plays, figuratively speaking, would you call? How would you live differently than now, if you were living in overtime? The approach of death, as David and so many wise people before him have taught us, it can be a great friend for it helps helps us to clarify what we care about most and the meaning of the precious relationships in our lives. So what do you discover when you you reflect on your life from this perspective? The perspective of over time. I'd love to hear from you about what you see afresh when you do this. If you do it, get in touch with me. It's friedman at Wharton.upen.edu, or you can find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Wharton Business Radio, Tune in for on-air broadcasts of Work and Life on Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern. For more about this episode's guest and about previous guests, visit workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends, your family, your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.